How was your weekend? Chances are someone at work has asked you this question on a Monday morning. To many of us, the answer is simple. You tell them about your kid's soccer game, an inspiring sermon from your preacher, or a great movie you saw with your significant other. But we don't always take the time to think about how these individual, complex social identities intersect and work together from one context to another. Intersectionality was the theme of this year's Intelligence Community LGBT Pride Summit held at FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. We spoke with three NGA team members who shared their stories of how they have navigated their intersecting personal and professional lives. Welcome to GeoInteresting. Dave is an Air Force captain who deployed three times before coming to NGA. He describes the challenges of deployment, particularly the difficulties of hiding a part of his identity. But during his second deployment, something happened that he'll never forget. I joined the military through ROTC uh, at the very proud The Ohio State University. Um, this is back in 2002. Uh, and so, I, at least my memory of how it all went down is in order to receive an ROTC scholarship, you obviously have to sign your life away to the government, which includes hundreds, it seemed, uh, documents that you have to sign. And during one of those experiences, we had this tech sergeant, uh, very old and crusty, and he sits you down and he, he's going through, sign here, sign here, and he gets to one of the required things he has to say, and he says uh, something like, uh, do you know what don't ask, don't tell is? And I kind of stammered through a, a, a response in the affirmative, like, yeah, I get it, uh, you can't serve in the military, and he said, that's right, can't be a fag, sign here. So that started it, um, and that was kind of jarring, um, mm-hmm. but you know, I wanted to be an RTC and I wanted to join the military, so there I signed. So you had to endure through that. Yep, endured. Um, and then, so kind of a quick background on me, so then I went into the Air Force, went through Intel School, um, graduated from Intel School, went to Shaw Air Force Base. Um, kind of do the book bookends here. So Shaw Air Force Base for a few years, a couple deployments there. We'll talk about that probably later. Mm-hmm. Um, I always knew I wanted to come to Washington, D.C. In fact, I told my mom that when I was about 13. And uh, I finally made my way here. I was lucky to be selected to work at NGA, where I did on the active duty and then eventually reserve where I am now. And so your deployments, you, talk, you briefly touched on that. You've deployed a few times, correct? That's right. So twice uh, to Iraq. Both of those deployments were under uh, what's known as Donas Don't Tell, or what thankfully was known as Donas Don't Tell. Um, so there was two in Iraq, and then I deployed with NGA to Afghanistan. After Donas Don't Tell was repealed. That's right. So what was Freedom. what was the difference between those deployments, the before and after, kind of? I mean, I think when people think about Donas Don't Tell, they don't really get it, um, unless they lived it. and really lived kind of the negative aspects of it, uh, of which many would argue there are only <laughs> negative aspects. But uh, living under Donald Trump tell wasn't just that, you know, you couldn't, you know, tell everybody what you did over the weekend. It was uh, oppressive to, to an untold degree, especially while deployed. Think about when you're deployed, you know, one of your kind of things that you look forward to is calling home to speak with your family, your loved ones. You can't even talk to your significant other, boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, the way you would want to because all of those conversations are recorded. And so some people might be able to compartmentalize that and deal with that. 
But then even conversations with your parents, should you have come out to them and told them, you can't even talk to them about it. Mm -hmm. So it is, even today I get chills talking about it. It was so difficult. My first deployment, I had just broken up with my first boyfriend. And so trying to cope with that was impossible. And not really be able to talk about it. Right, you were stranded, you were alone. Uh, so you had to work to that. Um, I was lucky to meet kind of an underground network uh, while I was on my first and second deployments. Those networks were critical. To kind um, of find your own support system. Right. Because you're away from your regular support system. Right. That's right. And we dealt together. Uh, and it didn't matter. Uh, it didn't matter who you are, where you came from. You had that single bond. And it, I mean, people endured together. I mean, they fought together. They cried together. Like that was the coping system that we developed. And you said you were actually deployed when um, President Obama announced that he was going to work on the repeal for Don't Ask, Don't Tell, correct? Yeah, that was crazy. Um, I was in Kirkuk, uh, which is on the border between Kurdistan and Iraq and, and obviously kind of the Arab areas of Iraq. And it was a pretty tense area. We get rocketed, I don't know, something like every other day. Um, but State Union was coming up. It was the 27th of January, which just happens to be a couple days before my birthday. And there was rumors that gays would make their first appearance um, in his speech. Uh, it would be the first time that a commander-in-chief ever recognized gays were in service. Often, uh, folks would kind of deny our existence, which was interesting in its own right. But So I heard it was happening uh, because of the time change. I can't remember exactly. It was 2 or 3 in the morning, so I set my alarm. Um, I got up and went to uh, kind of a TV that we had in the office. I was the only one there, obviously, at that early. And I turned it on and anxiously waited as he went through his speech. Uh, this is his first State of the Union, so he's working through a lot of the economic stuff, which is what the country was going through. And then he said it. I think it was just a, one short little line that said, and I'll work with Congress to repeal uh, the, the harmful don't ask, don't tell. And I can't, I mean, just imagine, like, you know, you're lying about who you are to everybody. You're making up fake email accounts so you can email your loved ones about who you're, you know, who you're missing. And there, the president says it's going to be over. It was, uh, it was amazing. It was obviously emotional. Uh, and again, you dealt with it alone, <laughs> which yeah. is crazy. Uh, something you're so happy and proud about, but there you are alone, uh, staring at the screen. It, it didn't take away from it. It was. I'll remember it till the day I die. I guess the other thing you have to realize is like Donuts Don't Tell just didn't suppress gay and lesbian service members. It suppressed our friends mm -hmm. because we couldn't, we feared for them. We couldn't tell them things because we feared what, you know, maybe they would be called in to testify, which happened. And I don't know how often people or how much people know about uh, the ramifications of this. Like, Often, friends, family members were called in to testify against a service member, and that drives wedges throughout. And often, it was cited that Donna Santel was there to, uh, to ensure unit cohesion. It only drove um, a wedge, and let me kind of really drive this, this wedge home. Uh, I think one of the most profound experiences I had as a leader in the Air Force um, was, in, was just a few days after New Year's. And one of my one of my troops came to me and he asked he said captain blakesley i need to pull you aside and tyler just wasn't that kind of person he often spoke in in, in public 
So we pulled, he pulled me aside and he said, I have to go to Georgia. Um, I need to see my sister. And I said, I mean, you still have the rest of the work week. What's going on? Is everything okay? He said, my father committed suicide. And I was like, Phew. and I'm 23 or 24 at this point, I'm just blown away. Uh, and I'm like, well, you're not going to Georgia alone. I'm going to drive you there because the idea of having a 19 year old drive, you know, a few hundred miles by himself after his father's committed suicide was never going to happen. And he said, unfortunately, you can't drive me. Well, of course I can. I'm your boss. I'm driving you. This isn't up for discussion. And he says, I can't tell you why, but you can't drive me. I'm like, I am driving you. This, this isn't up for discussion. And he said, the reason why you can't drive me is because my sister's a lesbian and she's in the United States Army. And if you go down there and see her, you'll be required to report her. Now imagine this, a kid who just father committed suicide, his business, biggest concern isn't his well-being or his sister's, but, but well, I guess it is his sister's. It's his sister's concern that she'll be outed of the military. Yeah, that fear. That's insane. That is a wedge that is of untold proportion. When you're in the midst of dealing with something like this, the last thing you should be concerned about is some arcane policy that people in Washington drafted. And so it was something that really drove home for me that really wasn't about me at all, um, but really just undermined the health of our of our services. What's the atmosphere like now? Oh, God. Uh, I think 180 isn't big, <laughs> big enough of a turn. Um, so as you mentioned, yeah, I'm the aide to the director of NGA Robert Cardillo and um, it, it's night and day I mean it's a it's almost a fantasy land um, if you can imagine you know cadet Blakesley back in in 2002 um, to to Captain Blakesley aide to the director it, it's just different um, it's the opposite it's the director is is obviously one of our biggest supporters in the community um, uh, he is steadfast in that support. Um, he has never once wavered in that support. And I just think that it's it's an amazing environment to work in in which you don't have to lie. Uh, you don't have those wedges. You don't have to worry about stuff like all of us had to deal with um, under those years of bonus long terms. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. We appreciate you being with us today. Catherine has more than 45 years of civil service, and about 15 years ago, she decided to make some big life transitions and found out that the strong community support she always had at NGA remained and still remains today. Um, we wanted to start, I'm hoping you could just give our listeners a little bit about your background. I know you have an extensive career in civil service, some prior military experience, and a history with NGA and some of its predecessor organizations. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? I joined the Marine Corps back in long time ago and spent 22 years with the Marine Corps. After that I retired from the Marine Corps, got out, did a couple of years working with DARPA, and then came to what was pre-NEMA at that time, it was before NEMA was even stood up, went through the organization to become NEMA, to become NGA. And I've worked with NGA and its predecessor organizations for about 21 years now. So I've got quite a long history of working uh, with 
as a government person, as military, as well as a contractor now with NGA, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. And so you were you were at NGA, then you left, and then you came back to NGA, correct? Right. I keep coming back to NGA. <laughs> I go out to DIA, jump back and forth between that and NRO for a while, came back here, went there. But uh, it was while I was working at NRO that the largest, biggest transition of my life occurred. It was there that um, I finally actually took the steps necessary to become me. I was born a boy, so it was a, about 10 years old when I knew something was different. I wrestled with that for many, many years. When I was about 40, I self-diagnosed myself, and I couldn't believe what I encountered. And I thought, this can't be right, this can't be right. Put it off for about 13 years, and then actually started to get some psychological help and realized that I was indeed transgender. Once that started, it allowed me to move from a very introverted ISTJ to a very extroverted ENFP, which is something a lot of people have difficulty understanding, but when you're trapped inside yourself and trapped in the closet, it's really hard to be you. Obviously, a lot has changed in your life. Um, what are some of the things that haven't changed that have stayed consistent for you? The things that have stayed consistent for me are my service. I've been in service to my country as a Marine. I've been in service to the armed forces, working with NGA and the other intel agencies. But the biggest thing that's been always constant is my relationship with God. It's That has been the most constant thing through all of this. I was very afraid when I started my transition. It was scary, to say the least. But I spent about two years in prayer trying to discern if this was something that not only I could live with, but if that God could live with me. And it was revealed to me very clearly that yes, God loves me for who I am, and he made me perfectly as a boy so I could be a girl. And that has probably been the most constant thing that has been with me the entire time. And in fact, right now I am in school, I'm about halfway through a school to be a vocational deacon. So wow. that's going to be continue the service uh, motif. Mm -hmm. And what about community? Have you, how have you relied on your community and do you feel a sense of support and community here? NGA is a really special place. I have been at other places and they have not been as accepting as understanding as NGA has been. I have had many people who, even when they were told that I was transgender, did not believe, did not believe it. I had one person I worked with, uh, she asked me, you don't seem like you're being challenged. And I says, well, I've worked on a lot tougher programs. And she said, like what? And I 
named off about a half a dozen. She goes, nope, don't know those. And then I named the right one, and she knew that. She goes, you didn't work on that. Okay. I said, well, yes, I did. And she goes, no, no, I don't remember you working on that. And I says, how about this name? And I gave her my old name. And she looked at me, and she says, huh? And I said, yeah, I was born a boy. That used to be my name. And she goes, they told me that when you were hired, but I never realized it. She's been a wonderful support. Um, a couple years ago, we during the Pride Month, they had a session on Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Well, up to that point, if we wrote an article for Pride, we were not allowed to use our names. Now, for Don't Ask, Don't Tell, they insisted we use our name. And I said... Once it I, was repealed. Yeah, that it was repealed. Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. And I prayed for about two and a half weeks over that because I'm not one who really advertises, although I guess this is quite an advertisement right here. Okay. But if someone asks me if I'm transgender, I'll tell them that. It's, it's not a secret, obviously, not in this community. But uh, this time we had to put our name on it. I had talked to one woman at a different building for a couple, couple three years. And I was talking to her that afternoon, and all of a sudden she turns to her computer and just starts typing and says while she's staring straight at the, key, at the screen, I read your article. It was wonderful. And then she looks at me and says, was that the right thing to say? And I said, yes, it was. And we both cried. It wow. was wonderful. Wow. Well, that's great. Is there anything else that you want to share? Oh, I've, I want to thank NGA. I mean, I was treated in different places. I have not been treated nearly as well. Um, bathrooms are always an issue. Not here. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people know that they have single-use restrooms here, but that's for people who have difficulty using a public restroom with a transgender person. And I've talked with and mentored several people, some here, some at other places, some through church. And it's, it's a teaching, it's an education, and that's one of my passions as well, is teaching people. People are afraid of things, typically because they don't know anything about them. Once you learn, it's not nearly as scary as it was to begin with. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that I'm trying to do is to educate people, to have them understand that I'm a person just like you. I have my own feelings. And it doesn't matter if I'm L, G, B, T, Q, I, A, or whatever. It really doesn't matter. It's the person that matters. And when I started this transition, I learned one very, very valuable lesson. Don't assume anything, because there are so many times when you make an assumption, you end up being wrong. I think that's a great message. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking to us. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Joe came to NGA after graduating from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Florida. 
Although working in the IC requires you to be good at keeping secrets, Jo never wanted to feel like she had to keep any secrets about who she is. Hey Jo, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I wanted to start by getting a little bit about your story so that we can give our audience a little bit about you. So in 2004, I was diagnosed with depression and what eventually become PTSD. Um, at the same time, a couple months later, my older sister came out as a lesbian and eloped to Canada to marry her wife. I was told by my parents after I was in the hospital for my depression, I was told by my parents, don't tell anyone about your depression. That's a secret. And when my older sister came out, uh, it was also don't tell anyone your sister's lesbian. Like you can't tell anyone about this. Um, and that kind of put the two in the same box for me where there was this really strong stigma mm -hmm. against being mentally ill and being gay. And I thought, well, definitely not, you know, not going to say anything anymore. But I became frustrated as I got older. You know, I had depression. It was on the books. And when I was 18, they they found out that, yeah, it was the depression was caused by trauma. So I got the PTSD diagnosis. Um, and at that time, I was really annoyed that I was keeping this a secret. Like, I didn't feel like PTSD should be a secret because there were so many soldiers, especially, who were coming home with PTSD. And they were suffering in silence, and I was suffering in silence. I was actually at a disability activist um, event. Like, a disability activist had come to talk to the students at my school. And I went up to him. So many of his stories that he told, it was kind of like, that's me. I feel that so hard. And I went up to him afterwards, and I was like, thank you for telling us your story. I have PTSD. And I related a lot. And he looked at me, and his eyes went wide, and he said, no one with invisible disabilities ever talks about their disability. And that was the first time you had said it out loud? or That was, yeah, that was the first time I told a stranger mm -hmm. that I had it. Because I was in the process of telling, like, my family and stuff that, hey, my diagnosis has changed. I have PTSD. So there were people who knew. But that was the first time I told a complete stranger. I was like, hey, I've got PTSD, and I really relate to what you said. So... And he said, no one ever talks about that. You should talk about it. And so I started talking about PTSD and what it was like to have it and telling people I had it. And it was nerve wracking. There were people who were like, oh, were you a soldier? And I would have to say, no, I was not. I actually developed it as a kid, you know, and kind of explain what happened. Um, but as I started doing it more and more, more and more people were coming out with it. So more and more people were saying, hey, I have PTSD. This is what it's like. This is how hard it is. And the movement was really growing towards understanding PTSD as mental illness. And it's almost its own its own community, right? It I mean, is. It is. There is not as big a community in the civilian world for mm -hmm. people with PTSD as there is in the military world. But we're out there and there's quite a few of us. Mm -hmm. um, so th the community is growing. The support for it is growing. I honestly, I joke that I have the most socially acceptable mental illness there is because there are unfortunately people out there with mental illnesses who they can't come out of the closet because people are afraid of them and they're afraid of themselves. And so it's really tragic. Um, but I was coming out of the closet around the with a mental illness around the same time I was dating my first girlfriend. And I wanted to tell people about her because I wanted us to not be ashamed anymore. But at the same time, I remembered the kind of chaos that my sister coming out caused and how everything had to be kept a secret. Mm -hmm. After I broke up with my first girlfriend, I spoke to my older sister for the first time since she'd eloped. Wow. Yeah, and I did not want to tell her anything that was going on with me. I was like, I'm not using the words. I'm not going to say anything. Um, but 
I thought that this is really unfair. If I can talk about my sister now, I should be able to talk about me. So I started telling people around me and it was interesting the reactions I got. Like they they were very similar to the reactions I got when people found out I had PTSD. Mm. They had questions. There were people who asked me really uh, personal and unnerving stuff that it was like, whoa, that's none of your business. Stay out of there. So um, and just people who felt like they had this right to know more about me than what I was willing to share. But I hadn't fully come out of the closet until after Pulse. And it was when Pulse happened that I thought, this is not right at all. There's too many of us who are afraid. And it's not okay to be afraid anymore. It's not okay to be secrets. I think um, we're secret keepers here. That's kind of what we do. But our identity shouldn't be a secret. Mm -hmm. So who we are and how the different parts of ourselves come together, that should not be a secret. And do you feel like, so do you feel comfortable being yourself here? When I started in January, I kind of made a promise to myself. I went back and forth. Like, do I go back in the closet? Do I stay out? What's going to happen? Like, I'm now in government service. What do I do? And I kind of made the choice back in January that I was going to not keep having PTSD a secret, not keep um, being panromantic a secret. So I was very much, I don't want to go back in that closet. So I tell people, like, I don't try and make it a big deal, but I tell people, I am panromantic. I have PTSD. This is me. This is all of me. You know, you're getting it all. What would you say to someone who wants to be an ally of the LGBT community, but maybe doesn't know how to get started or how to be best supportive? Um... That can be a difficult uh, thing. I think the most important thing is that you listen and you let people speak. And you never apply words to a person that they haven't chosen for themselves. So when someone comes up to you and they says, I'm genderqueer or I'm panromantic or I'm asexual, it can be a little like, okay, what the heck is that? You're just making words up, but they're not. And so it's important that when they say, hey, this is me, these are the words I use to describe myself that you use those words too. And I think that's honestly one of the most important things you can do is to just listen to someone, take them at face value and accept who they are. Mm -hmm. These stories of intersectionality highlight our ability to find strength in ourselves and our community and celebrate the differences that make up our agency. Thanks for listening to Geo Interesting. It's produced by NGA's Office of Corporate Communications. To hear our other podcasts, subscribe and follow us on iTunes and SoundCloud.